Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour. Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Better Call Saul, Saul Gone is still over, but we are just getting started talking about it in scene-by-scene detail here on the Better Call Saul recap on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. Josh Wiggler here, joined once again by Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, uh, just a quick question for you about regrets. Do you regret anything about how we covered the Better Call Saul finale the night previously, or are you feeling still pretty good? I'm feeling very good about it, if I'm being honest. I just regret that we're here again. <laughs> we're just uh, kidding. here we are just having the just same conversation kidding. again and again aren't nah, we nah we're yes we can only we only ever have the same conversation yes. exactly yes. but we had to go back down the what is it dumpster i don't know uh, yeah back. uh i definitely think that there is some down the hatchisms uh that we could discuss here in saul gone the final episode of better call saul ever this is our second shot at it antonio and i stayed up after the finale recorded our live first impressions with the patrons of Post Show Recaps present, and we flipped that podcast around in your feeds. We hope you enjoyed that one. But those were mostly vibes, man. These are scenes that must be unpacked. Uh, We're going to go through the episode again with a fine-tooth comb. We're going to pick out every single diamond from the trash, Antonio. That's the plan. 
Oh my gosh, I better get this egg yolk off of my shoulder then. Yeah, uh, keep that away from my wife. She's allergic. Uh, <laughs> might are, be duck egg. It might be we, duck egg. We are going tell. dumpster diving for lingering diamonds here on the Better Call Saul finale. As that, there is still much more to discuss. We are in the immediate day after. Antonio, I think it's been not quite 24 hours since the finale aired as we are saying these words. It's been a bounty of a day for post-episode uh, post content. Lots of really fun interviews. It's great to see... Peter Gould and Bob Odenkirk and everyone feeling free to say whatever the hell they want about Better Call Saul. It's kind of cool. It is really nice to have the lid like completely off. And honestly, for me, it still hasn't totally sunk in that we are in the end game uh, and we're beyond it. Like We're in a point now where there's nothing left to spoil. We can look back and say what was on the board uh, or what was considered or uh, what was not ultimately closed off uh, in the finale. So we're here in the aftermath and it is really only starting to sink in. And part of that is listening to the insider podcast. Uh, part of it is reading the interviews and listening to just the sort of unfettered takes, uh, not having to cover up any worries about spoiling anything from the people that were involved with the show. So it is a unique place to be in for sure. So we will bring as much of that to bear in the conversation as possible. Not the bear, Antonio, which I know is your other favorite show. Uh, yes, Chef. To. Yes, Chef. Chef. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we are going to be talking about this one. Of course, we are also going to be taking your feedback in an upcoming podcast alongside returning friend of the podcast, uh, special advisory podcaster, Antonio, Christian Hubicki returning once again for some chicanery here on the Better Call Saul podcast. We will answer listener feedback there, get Christian's takes one last shot at the finale and then we're hoping to get Rob back on the line at some point in the not terribly distant future so you haven't gotten rid of us quite yet you want to get feedback in send it bcs at postshowrecaps.com that's bcs at postshowrecaps.com or you can tweet at us I'm at Ron Howard Antonio's at AC Mazzaro you can hang out with us in the postshow recaps patron discord when you sign up patreon.com slash postshowrecaps Still getting ad-free versions of every single one of these final season Better Call Saul podcasts. Really fun turnout from new patrons. Lots of first-time, long-time patrons who showed up for the Better Call Saul of it all here in these last couple of days and weeks. We really appreciate that. that. If you want to be a part of that, we certainly would appreciate that as well. Patreon.com slash recaps is the way. Now, Antonio, it is time to follow the way back to Saul Gone. We are hopping into the time machine and traveling back in time, not just uh, 22 or so hours earlier in our real-time lives, Antonio, but all the way back to season five, uh, which is where the Better Call Saul finale begins. It begins with Bagman, uh, and we are once again reliving the uh, up to that point, would you say, worst day in Jimmy McGill's life, worst series of days in Jimmy McGill's life? Yeah, maybe not in hindsight, obviously, but at, at until that point, for sure. I mean, look, in how in his living room with with Howard uh, and everything that happened with Jimmy and Kim and Lalo there, it's horrible what happens. And Howard, if nothing else, was a very close acquaintance of Jimmy. So some might say friend. Uh, but a lot more people died right in front of Jimmy in the desert. So you could certainly mark this as one of the very worst days of his life still, even after all the events of the show. Yeah, I think with the context of the full episode and understanding more about the time travel motif that's going to be running through it, it's obviously going to get talked about here as Jimmy and Mike 
find their way to a water source and they're going to they're going to plop down. Jimmy is just going to start feasting on H2O. Mike is like Augustus Gloop's mother and saying, slow down, you're going to make yourself sick so that Jimmy won't fall into the vat of chocolate. Uh, And when they sit down, this is where we get into the time travel conversation for the first time. Uh, Take six million bucks. We're going to build a time machine. The people you're worried about, Mike, are never going to be able to catch us. With the context of the rest of the episode and knowing more about what they're going to be doing with time and regret and that whole theme that's going to hang so heavily, not just over this one episode, but hang so heavily over the entirety of Better Call Saul, Antonio, I wonder if this reads as one of those moments in time that if Jimmy could go back, this would be a place that he would stop by on his $6 million, $6 billion time machine. Yeah, maybe, right? Uh, We have talked about in Switch when in season two, episode one, after Jimmy has has driven away from uh, the... (laughs) He's basically dealing with uh, everything that comes in the aftermath of fallout of delivering the Kettleman's and their money back to HHM. Uh, and the possibility of the Sandpiper settlement uh, or the Sandpiper case kicking off and him getting the job at Davis and Maine. And he says to Mike in the toll booth, like, we had all this money. Uh, why did we let it go? And uh, Jimmy says, well, I know why I did, and I'm never going to do it again. And then, of course, in this scene, he does it again. He has his hands on a lot more money, uh, and he walks away. At least in this case, I do believe he walked away out of fear, fear of Lalo, fear of retribution from the cartel. Uh, but those are all things that he experienced in one way or another in the aftermath of the seven million dollars being dropped off. And that seven million dollars got Lalo out of prison uh, for one. Uh, so maybe the regret isn't just that he didn't walk away with the money. Maybe the regret is where he walked with the money, uh, what he did with it and what happened in the aftermath. So I think all of that is key uh, in this scene. Uh, What do you make though, of the fact that ultimately we do have these three time travel scenes in the episode or the three uh, flashback scenes to, to key moments throughout the series. And Um, yet we don't have any that actually go back to civil war times or ancient Rome. (laughs) Yes. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Uh, No. And we don't have, we don't have any Howard either, but, we can talk about that later, but uh, I'm. I want to know what you make of the if there's a, a, a separate lesson to be gleaned from each of them, uh, and spe- specifically with regard to uh, what Jimmy says in the scenes and how he reacts to what's going on around him. He tells Mike, for example, a story uh, in, as far as his time machine goes. All he wants is to make money. That's right. what his takeaway from the time machine uh, suggestion to Mike is. And I, of course, think that this is the surface level suggestion, what he's carrying subtextually, maybe different. You asked me, I think, about the subtext. Is this one of the days he would go back to? I want to know if you make anything in this scene of the fact that he just wants the money. Uh, and that's the answer he gives Mike. It's different to the answer he gives Walter, which is more related to comfort. Uh, so I, I wonder if what, what you make right. of the fact that what he tells Mike is I just want I, I want money. Ultimately. See, I, I think that that's fun that you that you posit it that way as uh, he just wants the money. And in the scene with Walt, it's a little more about comfort, uh, because I, I think that there is a way in which the money is not unlike the space blanket for Chuck. Uh, It is a security blanket of sorts. And I think so much of the end of Better Call Saul has really clarified the ways in which um, these two men were really sick in their own separate ways and the ways in which they they hid themselves and wrapped themselves within, um, you know, these these different masks and these different avatars for themselves. Uh, And I think for for Jimmy, it's just so much easier to like 
wrap himself in so much money that he can't even see. He can't even breathe. There's too much effing shit on me. He can't breathe. And he becomes this <laughs> Carl Havoc money monster. Uh, and I and I think that in this moment in Bagman, there is still this career mindedness for for him, this new life that he is building for himself now as a cartel lawyer, as Saul Goodman. He is self-anointed. You know, he has changed the name. He is in the avatar. He does not know how much deeper he is going to go until he's going to go full native on Pandora that deep into the avatar. Oh, Jake Sully. Um, <laughs> Jake Sully. Jake yeah, Sully. Jake Sully. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, he's close. Uh, and I think here, even in Bagman, he's still at that point. Um, I think in, you know, the moment in Granite State that's referenced in this episode in his scene with Heisenberg, he's obviously still really close to that as well, though he is standing atop uh, an empire fallen. Uh, and so maybe he has the money is removed from him in a manner of speaking at that moment in time. And there's an ability to to expose himself a little bit closer to something uh, of a of a softer underbelly. Um, we're still not all the way there. But I think that the way that this is all positioned, these three scenes that we're going to get littered throughout the episode, these flashbacks, this one with Mike, the one with Walt, and the one with Chuck, that kind of really drives home in conjunction with the final confession that he makes in court. Um, I just love the way that they do play while they're out of time with one another. There is such a through line to all of it that you want to find in the best of your time travel stories. Um, there is a real way in which this is a time travel story, this episode, that I, that I really, really greatly love. It's not a literal time travel story, but structurally, absolutely, we are messing around in that way. Yeah, and of course, in stories like that, you are always concerned. Uh, and the, the the motif or the recurrent theme seems to be like you. There is no time travel. There is no time machine. Walter says it on like a quantum mechanics level or a quantum physics level, and he's not wrong about that. Uh, but uh, or at least I think he's not wrong about <laughs> that. What know. do I know? Yeah, what do yeah. I know? Listen, uh, Alan Alda says different. So yeah, Alan Alda says it. Uh, yeah. yeah. So if Alan Alda says differently, maybe he knows better. Uh, but. I think there's also the the kind of more metaphoric adage like the you can never go home again once you leave. Right. Uh, the time travel isn't possible. The time machines aren't possible that you can't just go back, relive the past and fix a thing. That's not a thing that can happen. What you can do, maybe, uh, is figure out where you're at right now, accept your place, accept what you've done to get yourself there, and learn to live with it, learn to make progress and grow from there. And I do think that that's what we see throughout the course of the episode. Jimmy can't go back as Saul, as Gene, as Jimmy, as James McGill, the fourth personality that emerges more clearly in the courtroom here at the end. Uh, he can't go back and change these things that have happened. He could certainly ruminate them, ruminate on them, and in ruminating on them, glean lessons from them that can somehow allow him to move forward into the future uh, in a better way, in a more evolved way, in a different way, not being pulled down or weighed down by the issues of the past, uh, but progressing uh, with them and from them. And so I do think you're right that we're doing a lot of time travel without really doing it because we're doing it in his head in a way. We're doing it in a in a way that if you're on the run and you've been caught and you're doing a reckoning of everything that you've experienced, these are the sorts of things you'd be thinking about. And in thinking about them, Walter White puts a really nice bow on it and says, oh, this is about regret. Uh, because, yeah, that's a that's a big part of it for sure. And learning to live 
in spite of that regret, with that regret, making progress on it, I think is where uh, Jimmy and Gene's going to have a lot of thinking time uh, as James McGill in prison uh, to deal with this. So Mike's scene, I think, is interesting because uh, I clearly Mike is expressing his regret and has, as I said last night, two very specific dates here. He immediately comes up with them. Jimmy has his own date, but it's not a personal date for him. It's a gross one that he's just going to use to make money. But Mike has two very clear dates on the calendar that he has circled in red in his brain. Uh, and Presumably you know, Ma- his son's death on yes. December 8th, 2001. Yep. And then the day he took his first bribe, March 17, 1984. Yep. Yep. Um, any significance to that date, do we think, beyond that? like St. Patrick's Day? Hey, Okay. Yeah, Mike maybe took a bribe on the St. Patrick's Day parade or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was in Philly, right? I don't know what kind of St. Patrick's presence they have in Philly. They have other unusual traditions in Philly, like the Mummers. Uh, Cut to sure. the gang celebrates St. Patrick's Day in Philly, March 17, 1984, with the good title point. music. Yes, yeah. good point. It, it's a, of course, Mike is somehow involved in one of Frank Reynolds' schemes. Why do we not? Why do we not see this coming? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Hey, he, maybe he Sandys. is. Could he be the real troll toll that the song was based on? <laughs> yeah, uh, and that would be... Uh, the, You're the, gonna the, pay the troll toll to get in. That's kind of what he was like with the stickers. Jimmy accused him of being a troll in season one, uh, in, in episode two. So it all fits, baby. It all yeah. fits. We're really putting yes. it all together. Get, yeah. Got some Pepe Sylvia in play here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I Mike has those two very specific dates in mind, telling me that he's been carrying them around with him Uh, And you asked earlier if this was one of those dates maybe for Jimmy. And maybe it was. Maybe this is why we're looking back. And I can't imagine why his conversation with Walter and Granite State would be one of those dates. Uh, But this is certainly something that he's remembering. I had $7 million. There's a lot I could have done with it. What I did was use it to bail the person out of prison who ultimately ended my relationship and killed my friend. Right. Um, we're going to get to it, obviously. But while it's on the mind, in case I lose it, uh, why would he be going back to that night in Granite State as one of the times that he could, uh, you know, travel back to? First of all, perhaps just the time travel rules is it's got to be one of the times that he was uh, in conversation with time travel. Those are the only times that he can quantum leap back to. Antonio. Oh, my gosh. What if that's the rule of the real universe? That I might start be th- talking about it like while I'm playing I- the lottery. Why do you think I'm still talking about Lost all these years later, dude? <laughs> I have so many regrets no, listen i've been wondering that <laughs> I know you have. <laughs> um but the reason why i think it makes sense to have this as one of those scenes is really informed by the ending of the show and to go back in time to some of our earliest conversations heading into the final season you and i were talking about um you know maybe forecasting the world where jimmy turns himself in at some point by the end of the show and that he he lands in prison as sort of the final result and it is uh, of his own choosing. And we're not all the way there, but in, in some ways, that's exactly what happens. And I think that we, we thought that was a possibility for the show when we considered the way that he went out in Breaking Bad. And his final scene in Breaking Bad is, what, the next day after the scene that we're getting of Saul and Walt in the basement in Granite State here at the midpoint of this episode or towards the end of this episode. So I think that there could be a world where he is regretting Maybe I should have just done the John Dillinger thing that I told Walt to do. Maybe I should have just gone and it wouldn't have been so bad. Uh, And ultimately, that's what he's going to choose to do once he's faced with the position of either getting off relatively easily but dishonestly or getting off rather harshly but honestly. Uh, So I think that having that Granite State scene in here might reset him back to that place in time where he was thinking of that for Walt 
and now being wise enough to realize that this is a fate that he can wear. I like that. I like that. I think that that uh, is a good reason that it's there. Um, for me, I think the surface level takeaway of the Mike scene is just that Mike very clearly and with little prompting, uh, when given the opportunity to talk about it, wants to make his life right. And at least in the moment of the scene, uh, Jimmy's the one who brings it up. Uh, what he doesn't want, he doesn't want to make his life right. He has no regret like that. He just wants to make money at that time. And I think you rightly are tagging that to the time uh, that he was wanting to do that, that he was willing to be uh, an amigo de cartel so he could be uh, a, a, a successful professional to build his career. He did just want to make money at that time. But if you imagine this scene uh, through the lens of Gene Takovic thinking about it as he's on the run uh, or as he is ruminating on one of the various uh, times he's had the opportunity to do that once he's put into custody, be it in the cell or on the plane, uh, maybe he's looking at it and saying, this was a moment. This was a moment where I could have done something differently. Uh, and I do think that we could go back and, and map the Walter one in that way as well. But I think on the surface level, it's also important to map where this guy was at the time that he had that conversation, because those are the three distinct phases, I think, that are in play throughout. Uh, it isn't it isn't so much that Walter, Chuck and Mike are the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future. Uh, in some ways, it is Jimmy McGill, right? Because the Chuck scene is the earliest that we really see Jimmy McGill uh, in Albuquerque as Jimmy McGill lawyer. Uh, it's one of the first things we see of him as a lawyer. Uh, and then, of course, after that, we have Saul Goodman, uh, with Walter, and then we have this scene with with Mike, where he's early Saul Goodman, but still in the Better Call Saul timeline. So we have three distinct eras of the Jimmy McGill Saul Goodman character in these flashbacks, uh, and in some way, I think it that reflects uh, the various signposts of his life as well. So I, I think that th it's really clever to have these three scenes in there. Uh, and on the Insider Podcast today. Uh, Peter Gould said he wanted the Chuck one. He wasn't sure if he was going to get the Chuck one. And that one took the longest to break uh, for them to figure out what to do with this. So I think they had more clear mindset on what to do with Mike. And I think that shows. I will say, I said this last night on the podcast, uh, I think a little bit. But one of the things that stands out to me, Josh, if you go back and look at Jimmy and Mike's relationship, it's so mercurial. And they're always so, like Mike is just so fed up with Jimmy most of the time. Uh, but it's so different here when they get the water and they're resting in the, the desert. Uh, Mike is ready to have an introspective, a vulnerable conversation with Jimmy. Guess that's uh, what happens when you run around the desert drinking your own pee. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been through a lot. And yeah, he Listen, Jimmy has won uh, a little uh, respect <laughs> from him at this point. He's won a little respect yeah. from him at this point by stepping up and doing what he did uh, and risking his life the way that he did. I think Mike starts to respect Jimmy a little more. So maybe he lets his guard down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Boyd and Raylan uh, dug coal together. Mike and Saul drank pee together. That's sort true. of the same thing. Yeah, very um, much. But I think that they'd been through a thing. And obviously that episode gets into it quite a bit. So it, it's really believable that while this was a scene that was left on the shelf, uh, you know, and probably was not even a twinkle in the eye at the time that they're making the episode Bagman, it makes sense within that time frame. Like yep. it really fits. You have this moment of huge vulnerability back in Bagman where Mike is standing over a Jimmy McGill who's ready to die. Just leave me, basically. And the why do you do it? And 
knew he, you know, is very, very clear about what he has done all of this for, who he does it for, why he killed a man for Gus Fring at this point. Um, so Mike's already there in some ways. I think like a bit of that punch drunk quality to the two of them. And Mike is not immune from letting his guard down. It's certainly why he dies uh, eventually. So um, I think that it makes sense. I think it makes a lot of sense to me. I wanted to get your take if we're going, you know, crawling through the episode, Antonio. Title card, final title card. We get what? We're in Jeppy's cab again is what we get here, I think. Yeah, we get a little bit of the Isotopes air freshener logo. What do you think? It's a little bit of like Albuquerque in the rear view mirror. We're saying goodbye. That's interesting. I like that take. I like that take because the other thing is, I will have to go back uh, and map out all of the the new credit intros because we didn't just get that. We also got, as I said last night, the look at of uh, the a, a very quick like one or two frame flash of the mixer that is in the prison that Jimmy is using to make the bread later. Uh, and so Albuquerque in the rear view. And then here is a flash for something that is going to be shown later in this episode. So a glimpse of the past and a glimpse of the future in one go, as we're re-recording the story of better call Saul over the pre-existing material. Uh, and that's, I, I, I have not yet fully come to, um, a great understanding, uh, I think, of what they were trying to do, both with the title conventions uh, of the last season and with the change in the credits. I think you made a very persuasive point when we talked about Nippy, uh, which is that Kim's off the show at that point. Once she's gone, fun and games are over. Uh, the ands are gone. There's no the two of them anymore. It's just the one thing. Uh, and we're in a different Anne's world. Marching. With Jean. We're marching. You know, all the little ands are marching. They all do it the same. Uh <laughs> I will say I think I can buy that. Uh, I'm just not sure if there's more to it beyond that uh, and what the other ones are meant to say. And I think these credits are part of it. Past, future, recording over the past. Uh, these are all motifs. Uh, can you change the past? Can you re-record? Can you get rid of who you are? Can you change that reputation? Uh, can you shed your skin yet again and become something different? I think the deterioration of the credits and the recording over uh, and the recording over with images from the past uh, bleeding through, uh, but new images that we've yet to discover also there in the credits. I think they 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 speak a lot thematically to what's happening in this finale uh, with James McGill, uh, looking back over his his past, not just Albuquerque in the rear view, right, but everything, looking back at these scenes like the scene from Bagman or the scene from Granite State, uh, and evaluating them and and looking like no, I I can't change that, but. Uh, maybe I can cast a new future for myself uh, that we can get a glimpse of, even if we're not there yet. So I like that in the credits. Uh, I find it to be very interesting. Of course, anyone who listened to this podcast throughout the season, and I think I even talked about it before uh, in last season, uh, knows I was fascinated with what they would do uh, with more credits uh, or with the opportunity to change the credits. So that was a big part of it. And before we move on from there, I just want to say um, – Interesting to me that it was Jimmy who wanted to have the conversation about the time machine. Mike got real with it. Jimmy did not. And Mike asks him, that's it? Money? What else? Nothing you change? And then Jimmy says, I'm arrested. And then he gets up. He's the one who wanted to have the conversation. Saying, and then he gets arrested. And then I'm arrested. And then he gets arrested. Uh, yeah, no, he's the one who gets up and walks away. So he wanted to have the conversation. But when it got real, he didn't want to have it. So yeah. it's like he, he wants to have these conversations. He wants to play around the idea of time travel. And he wants to he, he talks a big game 
on the surface level about time travel and these things. But when people get real with it, the conversation ends. And I think that that says a lot about where he's at uh, and, and his brain is at in the context of the series. But then by the end of this episode, who he is and what emerges from a person who's willing to be introspective and look back with regret and say there are things they wish they could change, who was unable to do it uh, with confidence multiple times uh, in this episode, who was able to do it by the end. Uh, so I like that Mike, of all people, was willing to get real, and then Jimmy didn't want to. That says a lot. That says a lot for me. So let's go to the Gene timeline. He's going to be on the run for much of this next sequence. Just a shout-out to Carol Burnett on her way off yes. the show. One final scene with Marion of her just dutifully staying on the line with Valerie and getting out the information, the license plate, uh, the make of the car, the color of the car, and just her final words of, oh, please, God, get them. Oh, uh, I hope they get them. In that moment in time, at the very least, uh, Team Marion all the way. Yes. And Marion is not necessarily someone who, uh, uh, who, who needs the nuance of who James McGill is by the end of this show. I think she's entitled to have that be her final impression of this human tornado that is Saul Goodman. She is not only entitled, but as Carol Burnett, uh, this is I, I'm just I'm given to wonder, like, what what's her next project? Is she right. in anything else? Is there anything else coming? Is this a wrap on Carol Burnett uh, as for a career? Uh, and I'm just not only I, I hope not. I'd love right. to see Carol Burnett many more times, but it, it, I'm, I'm loving if this is her kind of final salvo in a career uh, that is so it's incredible. It's a really great role. It's uh, so good. A really, really great role yep. was was Marion. I mean, this is really, it, it's so great to be on this side of things. And like now the things to speculate on with Better Call Saul are things that all of us can speculate on and never be right about until they choose to go back to this well some point in time in the future. We don't have the time machine. We don't know when that's coming. Um, but it, it was really fun along the way to do the speculation of things that we would find out. So we knew Carol Burnett was coming to the show and we didn't know in what capacity and popular consensus was Kim's mother and then we thought we were pretty clever when we were talking through oh she could be the show's answer to the vacuum repair guy uh, and it was neither of those things it was just a wholly original character who was going to provide an obstacle to Jimmy McGill by the sheer uh, act of existing uh, and she just breathed so much life into that and represents so much that Jimmy has done over the course of the show, underestimate people, uh, you know, have moments of humanity that uh, come through and get in the way of him and a goal. Uh, you know, the moment where I mean, it's, you know, he's certainly he's certainly I'm very glad that he did what he did, but he chooses not to uh, to murder uh, Marion. And so this whole thing happens with him getting, uh, you know, chased around Omaha by by the cops. Uh, and she is representing all of the the elder law situation in Sanford. Piper and it's coming back to bite him so it's just another way that the ghost of the past is showing up and it's a role that could have been you know maybe a little 2d or it would have been you know really good in the hands of somebody uh, less legendary than Carol Burnett but when you go a little later into the episode and Jimmy's going to be pacing around this is how they get you this is how they get you he can feel that way but for us as the viewing audience the fact that he gets got by a comedy legend that bob odenkirk's uh legendary dramatic role gets got by uh carol burnett in this really powerful late in her career at the very least role uh dramatic role 
just really, really, really brilliant on that meta level. Just another thing to sort of appreciate about the uh, the glorious structure that contains this story. Yes, 100%. And it's really nice that she is a fan, that she was a fan of Breaking Bad, of Vince Gilligan, of Peter Gould, of Better Call Saul, uh, because you could get her. She was gettable in that world, uh, and she was excited to do it, and it just sounded like everyone that she worked with said, Oh my gosh, like this is the Bob Odenkirk said on the Insider podcast today, one of the highlights, or maybe one of like the very biggest highlights of his entire career working with Carol Burnett. So, so cool that she's part of this. Uh, and the Robert Forrester casting uh, in a similar late stage uh, role in Breaking Bad, not as high profile, but I think carries a certain weight uh, in different circles, especially yeah. I think Vince Gilligan, uh, you know, fan of a lot of the films uh in the time period when robert forster was really really popping uh so i think in both cases it's really cool to see these creators get to work with people that they hold in such high esteem uh and that they can bring into a show and really crush what is a late stage small role in such a, a brilliant way i i hope marion is just watching cat videos happily on her laptop i hope jeffy is out of trouble uh i hope the whole thing uh is really dismissed and, and everyone in that world can just move on from all of this craziness that jeffy and buddy uh get off scot-free that's what i hope jeffy's gonna wind up in the alcatraz of the rockies just wait <laughs> yeah you would think i mean yeah. that certainly seems to be the path he's on like, and that's people... the next show you got jeffy and jimmy uh, and they're gonna you know he's oh gonna have gosh. to make it up to him I, I I'm almost I'm almost over talking about the next show at this point. Nope. Uh, yep, we're not we're not quite we're not quite quite through it yet. But, no, uh, no, yeah, yeah. no, it's coming. It's, it's coming. coming. Yeah. Uh, we still have to sift through the dumpster, Antonio, and see what kinds of diamonds are at the yes, bottom of the we thing. Do. We do, uh, which is uh, what Gene is literally going to be doing in this escape scene. Uh, as he's going to grab a phone, he's going to go on the run. We've talked about the Goodfellas of it all. I like the uh, music. I like the music again. Uh, Dave Porter doing. Uh, mm -hmm. Some I felt like again a little Mac Quail vibes, a little Mr. Robot vibes. This just kind of rampaging, marauding, uh, insane music that's playing. Uh, I really like that. There's some of these new music cues that have come late in this run of Better Call Saul have such a different energy to so much of that totally. what, what went before it. And this is one when he's on the run. It's just so frantic, uh, and it is really it really does help convey what's going on here. From the time he gets home uh, and he gets his his shoebox. He's crawling out the window. He runs into the uh, the drainage system there, the sewer, if you will, uh, and then gets through that uh, and ends up somewhere in a dumpster, somewhere just in an alleyway dumpster. Yeah, which is where he gets got. And we talked about how great it is that Jimmy McGill, that Saul Goodman trash lawyer is found in trash. The trash fugitive has been found exactly in his natural in ha uh, habitat. Yep. Um, but I think that there's uh, there's just so many great things. I think you're right about the Dave Porter score leading uh, lending to the intensity of the sequence. I think in the real time of watching it, you can certainly um, imagine a world where this is going to be the finale, that it's going to be Jimmy on the run all the way through rather than getting caught right at the end of the first real act of the episode, which is how this plays. And I don't think that that is like, 
I think that there's a, there's probably a perspective of it's very anticlimactic that someone just ends up knocking on the trash can and he pops out and he is surrounded by police officers. And that's the way that the great Saul Goodman goes down. Certainly Jimmy feels a certain kind of way about that. But I think that there is this moment in the dumpster uh, where, uh, you know, my first past feelings on the dumpster scene are one walking dead flashbacks and then two magic flute flashbacks. And today in watching the, uh, for the third time, second, time unmuted um one of the things that i was really struck by was how stupid he was trying to open up the cell phone with the diamond pack open you know the the top of it is off this freaking moron of course have you ever opened a plastic thing in your life don't you know that everything's gonna go flying secure that shit mr goodman and he doesn't and it's because this scene is really tense because it is one of these final battles that you're ever going to go you're going to ever see between Jimmy and his worst enemy himself Uh, So this is just a great final battle scene is a certain read of the dumpster. Uh, I loved that when I was watching it today and just realizing, yeah, you idiot, you just got yourself. And I think that it is this really big part of him that comes alive throughout this episode of, yeah, but also he wanted this, you know, uh, I wanted this. Uh, You know, I think that that's very, very much alive in the narrative of this episode. I love the dumpster scene. I think the dumpster scene is great. The he wanted this part is really resonant to me uh, because he is next. The next thing we see, he's being booked. He's one phone call. He calls Cinnabon uh, and he's talking about uh, just basic stuff. And then he says, yeah, let them know. Uh, and I thought he was going to say, I'm so Goodman. Uh-huh. Uh, he says, let them know. I need it. You're going to need a new manager. And yeah. Just, and uh, Cinnabon is uh, posting about this, right? There's a yeah. job listing today. Yeah. A new manager needed. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I believe that Cinnabon is shut down. So mm-hmm. yeah. I feel very cynical about all of that, but I won't get into it because I love better call. Cynical, Saul. yeah. Uh, I feel very cynical, yeah. Uh, but yes, um, let them know they're going to need a new manager. So still doing the decent thing with his one phone call. But then, of course, as you're pointing out, he is very Walter not adjusting well to Granite State situation, right. uh, pacing in his cell, yelling at himself. This is how they get you. What were you thinking? He's pacing around in his cell. Uh, and then he has the big breakdown moment where he sees the brick that says, my lawyer will ream your ass. Uh, and he's breaking down like a maniac and laughing and laughing. And that's where he comes up with the I'm my lawyer. I will ream the asses. And I know somebody that can help me with this and can provide me some legal cover. Uh, I'm going to call. I, you know, I'm going to trust experience here. I'm going to trust Oakley. Right. Yeah. He's going to give Bill Oakley the call um, before he does with the with the Cinnabon call. What do you take from the fact that that's his first phone call? Is it more a testament to the fact that he just doesn't have anybody? And so the phone calls kind of wasted on him. Or is there something in this Jimmy McGill who's trying to burst back to the surface here, who's trying to swim ashore from the gates of hell? Yeah. Is he trying to do you know, yet another, it's so small, it seems like, but a a not unimportant right thing in making Krista and the rest of his Cinnabon colleagues have a cleaner week than they're likely to have considering what's about to pop out. Like, is this a, is this a, an act of goodness from Jimmy McGill? uh, Or is this an act of loneliness from Jimmy McGill? I think it's a little bit of both. It's, it's not so much like I don't have anybody and therefore I'm going to waste my phone call. I think it is, a lot of it is shock. It's that I'm I'm I don't I haven't really processed this yet that I've been arrested, that they're going to get me for all of this, that I'm going down for all of it. Uh, I don't think he's fully processed that yet. So it's very much just like, well, I'm going to deal with the problem that's right in front of me. And that's my daily life. And 
for now, my daily life is still Gene Takovic. I'm still the manager at Cinnabon, and I'm going to have to deal with that. So I do think some of it is shock. It's just not knowing what else to do. You control the one thing you can control. It's like I'm yeah. going to I can give some notice uh, on this job, and I can feel free of that responsibility and concern. Uh, but the fact that it is concern, the fact that he does feel responsible for it, that's where the Jimmy McGill part does come out. And I do think that that's where you have to consider that. Despite it all, and even though he went nuts last episode and was ready to strangle Marion, he he did not. He was incapable of doing it. He was pulled back from the brink by his own sense of shame, uh, and he let her press the life alert bracelet, basically saying, I know what comes from this. You're going to call the police. I'm going to let you do it because the alternative is that I have to kill you, and I can't bring myself to do that. So even at his darkest moments, I think that there's still Jimmy in there, uh, or James, I guess, in this case, that he's still James. He's still a decent person somewhere inside. We know for a fact that his father was a very good person, wolves and sheep, uh, and that his father was a good person to a fault. Uh, we don't know as much about his mother, uh, but we know that uh, at least Marion-like, she she may have been a Marion-like figure because he was constantly screwing up. When Chuck does come to bail him out uh, of the Chicago sunroof situation, uh, Chuck's like, you didn't call mom begging me to come. You didn't. You weren't crying. And Jimmy says, I like I'm going to cry in Cook County Jail in front of everyone. Yeah, right. right. She hears what she wants to hear. Uh, clearly he knows how to play her like a fiddle. Uh, and he, so there may have been some connection to Mary in there. I don't know, but I do know that deep down, it does seem like both Jimmy and Chuck were raised by decent people, uh, because of them being decent people on one level. It's just slipping. Jimmy was always a shortcut guy in part because of Chuck, because he could never live up to the promise of his brother. So he took the easy way out. Uh, and, so I think that on, on, on part of this with the phone call, I do think is just him being a good guy uh, and looking looking forward to saying, like, I, I have to take care of this because it's my responsibility. And it's the first step of taking responsibility for the things that he's responsible for in this episode. Small step, but I think not insignificant. Uh, we didn't spend a ton of time on the immediate reaction podcast talking about Bob Odenkirk's performance when he reads the My Lawyer Will Read so Your good. Ass. Uh, just the the laugh, the angle on him, too. Just the look on his face. This is it, it does feel like some other form being born. There is yes. like this sort of monstrous alien quality, something really horror movie about this laugh, this cackle. How about mapping it to crawl space? How do you feel about totally. Walter's laugh at the end of crawl space mm -hmm. compared to it's, this? It's very similar. It's a bit, I mean, we talked about his crawl space moment, um, you know, back in, gosh, what was it in the Breaking Bad episode of Better yes. Call Saul? Yeah. Uh, with the, with the segue to, you know, from the, from the grave site to yep. him in bed that he may as well be dead. Uh, but I think that there is also something to be said for the fact that this is sort of this, this like sort of laugh of desperation. Uh, that is, I think, at least uh, in terms of performance, these things are related. Um, but it just felt very horror movie to me. I think the way in which I was, uh, you know, really so impressed and so many of us were so impressed with Ray Seahorn with the with the one take breakdown from Waterworks. Um, you know, I don't know that this is quite at that level by any stretch of the imagination because that was really impressive stuff. But this moment of it's almost like when Tom Hanks discovers fire in Castaway, you know, and is like <laughs> roaring by the bonfire. Oh, this moment of fire. Yeah. Uh, I like I'm a god. Like I'm the god of fire. You know, like there is that 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 version of Saul that shows up here that uh, it was really cool to see. It was like watching Bruce Banner Hulk out. 
so I really enjoyed that. Thought that was cool. Um, the Bill Oakley phone call. I don't have much more to say on this other than it's just so great that Bill Oakley ends up having such a big role in the finale. Yes. Um, and man, Bill Oakley probably has a, a pretty tough road ahead after all of this. This this really probably screws up William Oakley and Associates pretty badly, his connection to Saul and all of this. This was not the kindest thing that Jimmy has ever done to anybody else. Not the worst thing he's done to someone else, but maybe not the kindest. I hope that for Oakley's sake that Gene, or, or if you want to call him James, will take responsibility for that as well and will help him navigate how to uh, make chicken salad out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Because I, I don't think that Bill Oakley's savvy enough to do it on his own. I mean, he's very clearly kind of a, a poor man's Jimmy McGill in terms of what he's doing. It's a pastiche, right? We see his car somehow worse than Jimmy McGill's car at the beginning of Better Call Saul. Somehow worse than that, the car that Bill Oakley is parking on this rooftop when he has the conversation uh, with Gene here. Uh, but I, I like the idea that uh, there's a world where, because he became a mensch by the end of the uh, episode here, when James McGill finally emerges, uh, that James would say to Bill Oakley, like, Bill, I, I did wrong by you. That was a real kind of surprise I pulled. I'm not sure I was even anticipating what I was going to do throughout. Uh, let me make this right. Let me give you some rights to write a book about me or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm hopeful that Bill Oakley can make something good out of this. And I'm confident um, and I'm hopeful that Peter Dyseth, the actor who plays Bill Oakley, can make something good out of his role on Better Call Saul as well. I know he's Albuquerque based or New Mexico based, uh, but he was somebody who they liked so much and who Bob Odenkirk specifically uh, in perhaps a meta situation spoke up for after his one line uh, in the second episode of season one, Petty with a Prior, that he said over and over again, Bob kind of gave a heads up to the people with the production and said, you know, this guy is really good. Like we, I'm working with him. We're just rehearsing and doing these scenes and in between takes. This guy's something like we got to, you should, you should use this guy again. It's so, so great. That's Bob so great. gives the nod to Peter Dyseth and gives him the co-sign there. And Bill Oakley is a presence on this show throughout a very fun presence. Uh, and they get such a major, uh, major run here at the end. Yeah. Hopefully the same is said for Peter Dyseth and his role in the show. Hopefully Are we down for uh, a Bill Oakley spinoff? Oakley Doakley? <laughs> I'm not down for it with that title. <laughs> <laughs> No way, Ned Flanders. That's not happening. No, no. I like the idea of him with the um, with the rights to the Saul Goodman story, I think is fun. It is hard for me to imagine Jimmy McGill letting go of some sort of producerial role in that. I think that that's a really fun thing to speculate about. And if you want to talk about, which I know you don't want to talk about, uh, Better Call Saul successors or continued expansions of this universe, one that might be fun is the Jimmy McGill story feature length film as produced by Jimmy McGill. Yeah. Uh, you know, or that even fun. the full on documentary, but just the culmination of all of his, uh, you know, his cinematic flash and, and, you know, and pomp and circumstance, you know, it's something that was so integral to him throughout the entirety of his existence as a character. He first shows up as a commercial lawyer. Uh, he is filming throughout the entirety of Better Call Saul. Uh, so I, I love Bill Oakley getting the rights. It's just so hard for me to imagine Jimmy McGill not being involved in telling that story. But the more and more that I think about it, since you brought up that idea, the more and more I feel like there's some inevitability to that existing in my head canon, at least, of what goes on beyond 
the gates of Better Call Saul. Yeah, <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, he had his own that. film crew. He had his own film crew. His ads were always so important to him. Uh, they did good things and bad things with the film crew. Uh, he used them uh, to run cons. And of course, there are the Son of Sam laws that you can't necessarily profit. Uh, well, not necessarily. You can't profit off of your crimes. If you're a criminal, you can't do that uh, and just make money off of your story. But if he doesn't care about money, right, he just cares about the the pomp and circumstance of it all. The art. Yeah. Bill Oakley gets the money. I'm all for that. Make yeah, that happen. I think that's fun. I think that's fun. I do want um, to talk about that. And maybe Bill is the trusted person for all of that money to go to and can uh, give Kim some of that money under the table so that Cheryl Hamlin can't come for Kim. Wow, this uh, is getting really dirty. <laughs> a perfect, we're all the way back at the bottom again. I think. Yeah, we're slipping, Josh. Like we're slipping, slipping Wiggy. Yeah, they, yeah. J- James McGill has moved on, and this yeah. is not something he would do. Yeah. But Sloshy we want it to happen. Sloshy no, Joshy is happening. Yeah. I don't like that at all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so we have Bill Oakley enlisted on the side of Jimmy McGill. He is going to be uh, joining him in this next crusade. It's during this uh, this first act, uh, this first scene in the the act back, where we see Marie Schrader is going to be here. That Betsy Brandt is back on the show. Um, there's some fun stuff going around about her participation in the show, about uh, Marie specifically as a character and Betsy's performance as well. Um, one of the things I believe it's Peter. Gould uh, was talking about how uh, obviously all of this is in black and white, so you can't tell about the color and everything, but uh, they, I don't believe she was wearing purple in the shoot, uh, which is very much Marie's color. So it feels like some uh, end of innocence with the death of Hank. That's the level of care they are putting into it. We were never even going to see that color anyway, Antonio. And that's something that they were thinking about according to the insider. And just to, uh, because we're talking about it now, that's why we get the shiny shark skin suit later. Uh, Peter Gould wanted the suit that could convey the most Saul in black and white. So put him in the shiniest damn thing you could find. Uh, and so that makes sense uh, that if you're going to shoot in black and white, you can't really show purple 
who knows what to do with that. But Maria's probably moved on from purple, as you're saying that they talked about. But the, Saul Goodman did not move on from the pomp and circumstance. Uh, he had to be as flashy as possible, but we we're still doing black and white. So we got shiny. Uh, we got as shiny as possible. Um, um, go ahead. One other, one other thing with Marie that uh, I was just reading. So today there was some sort of uh, press conference of sorts, uh, some digital press conference with Peter Gould and Bob Odenkirk. I think Ray Seahorn is there as well. And in the Vulture recap, at least of this call, uh, there were, was some talk about people wanting to see a spinoff series to go back to those trash diamonds featuring Marie and Kim Wexler together, that the next show would be the Marie and Kim show. Is there any world where these two make sense together as screen partners to you? Uh, Ray Seahorn, when this was brought up, she says, yep, sign me up. I'm ready to go. What do you think? Is that something you want? I think that in the world where there is another story in this universe, should we go back there? And there does feel like some inevitability of a gravitational pull back into this world at some point down the line. If Betsy Brandt isn't meaningfully involved, I do think uh, I'm insulted by that. Yeah, I think I'm probably frustrated by that. She's so good here. Right, she's, she's so great. good. She's it's great like, here. Finally, just like something. I mean, there was there were some great moments for her in the end game of Breaking Bad, for sure. Uh, just like some really you were waiting for these kinds of moments for her. This scene just feels like such a comeuppance and such a reckoning that shows you the firepower that was not just behind the character, but also the actor. But yeah, if they if they ever go back to this well and they don't turn those guns on, I'm going to be pretty annoyed about it. I I know they also wanted to get in a gun uh, or that there was some discussion of the, the possibility of that. I think that's another uh, that's another thing that we could consider. I mean, of yes, gun. yes, the, that's that's the gun we could consider yes. and a gun uh, could stand in or could could have been part of this in the much the same way, uh, but a different way uh, because she doesn't have the rage for Gomi and Hank and that she and Marie probably not are not on good terms or certainly are not on. Uh, the same terms as they were. So there's some complications to that for sure. That would be interesting, not just from the Marie standpoint, but uh, the Skyler standpoint that it didn't fit. But Marie is such a good fit here uh, for this reason, because Jimmy did have those interactions with Hank that we saw on Better Call Saul and that we saw um, specifically really on uh, the the throughout Better Call Saul. I forget which episode it was, but uh, he's got a couple of the interactions there with Crazy Eight. Uh, when they're working on that whole deal right. uh, and crazy eight is feeding the information that Lalo wants him to get about the chicken man. So he can set up that and it can look like the DEA is doing things and on and on and on. Jimmy and Hank did have a pass. So bringing that up here, I think was, was important. I also in this scene, because Bre Betsy Brandt is so good, we, we sort of lose sight of the fact that they stacked up and are reading out all of the charges and they've come up with life plus 190 years. Yeah, I have that written down as well. Life plus 190. Uh, so it is, I think, the number, the sheer number, along with then when Marie comes in and delivers the reality behind that number, it's there to remind us, I think, on some level that this Jimmy McGill is not a good guy, uh, especially not as Saul Goodman. He's not a good guy. What he did as Saul Goodman was bad. And that, look, that's 
That's my moral take on it, but I think that's the show's moral take on it. Yeah, well, I think it's the fulfillment of Chuck's prophecy of the the chimp with the machine gun. Like this right. is the you know this is him you know sort of standing atop the hill of the bones of all of the people that he wronged along the oh way. Oh my gosh, I want to watch this movie. You know, it's a post apocalyptic, uh, better the call Planet Saul. of the Apes. Yes. Yeah, Saul Apocalypse. Uh, you know that this is that moment that it happened. That it was foretold in the stars and Chuck called it. Right. Uh, and so here we are on the farthest end of this trajectory uh, that we have been to at this specific moment in time. That it just makes sense that, uh, you know, this is uh, better call Smog's gold pile, right? That he is sitting on this, uh, this mountain of treasure that has turned into ash. That like the flip side of all the glitz and glam is the blood and oil and crystal meth that was right. cooked on behalf of, uh, of his actions. Right, and uh, sometimes it's not oil in those barrels. Uh, right. It's, you know, it's bodies or money or something else. So I think that the show is, is trying to remind us that he was involved in some things that were very harmful and that hurt a lot of people. Uh, and here they're bringing Marie out to, to have the very public face of that uh, be present and remind him of it. Uh, and I think the finale is about him coming to terms with, yes, that's right. Like maybe not everything I did as Jimmy McGill and some of the legal things that I may have done or a lot of the tricks that I've pulled, maybe not all those things are things that need to be confessed or that I need to feel that I did wrong or need to have regrets about. But this is what he did with Walter White is like it is. It's unquestionably uh, they were involved in the manufacture and distribution of addictive drugs that ruined probably thousands of lives. Uh, and they legitimately and were directly involved in the murders of all of these people. Uh, Jimmy set it up. He knew it was an ongoing criminal enterprise. He was direct. He's right to say that if it wasn't for him, uh, that Walter White would not have prospered the way that he did. So uh, with that comes the responsibility of your role in it. And at least in this scene, he is not yet willing to accept no. it. He's still playing games with it. Yes. Uh, so he is playing this whole, you know, this whole scenario out of he was it was against his will. It's a reflection of Walter White's own confession video that Hank Schrader is the true Heisenberg uh, back in Breaking Bad. Uh, and so it's a page from that playbook to a certain degree. And in that way, it is further disgusting that uh, Marie is having to watch something like this again. Uh, she's being re-traumatized probably in this moment where, uh, you know, she had to endure that video from Walt and Hank was still alive back then. Hank died in the pursuit of Heisenberg. And here she is face to face with uh, the other, you know, the, the only person who's been discovered on the other side of Heisenberg's death uh, and Hank's death specifically. And here he is pulling that same tactic must just be horrific for her. Uh, and Betsy Brandt, I think, really sells um, the the emotionality of that, of how how awful that must be, but also the disbelief and the disgust the skepticism, there's just a lot loaded into that performance that uh, was such an unexpected delight of the finale. Some of the stuff about the finale, I think uh, we feel pretty good about uh, having having called some shots on, uh, finger guns, uh, touche touche and all that. Uh, I don't know that that's the noise that you make when you blow out the smoke from the finger guns, but it's the noise I chose <laughs> to make in this moment in time. Is that a Stanley Tucci tribute? <laughs> yeah, shouts to the Tooch. Uh, what, let's get another one of those food shows on CNN, please, and thank you. Uh, but I think that there is this moment from her uh, 
where she's looking at him and it's like you can you can really understand that this is the person who should be here in this moment if you've got the you know the full breaking bad appreciation this is harder for the better call Saul only people more it and is. more though the way that this show ultimately bore out it's really clear that while there was no uh you know there was no vacuum cleaner Antonio there was no vacuum repair person to get you out in isolation better call Saul this show does not exist in a vacuum it exists in conversation with the greater franchise and ultimately these final four episodes specifically really, really made that clear to me. Um, yeah. So having Marie as a representative from that era, she's just absolutely the right person. It's really, really great. I I, I agree. And I think it's uh, it's fascinating the way that this scene played out where uh, she ran through the laundry list of everyone that was directly connected to her that was impacted by this and reminded us all that Saul wasn't maybe necessarily this fun guy we should root for. Uh, and then he immediately, as you're pointing out, Walter White uh, with uh, Hank as the real Heisenberg kind of thing, he immediately recast the whole experience that we were just reminded of lies. All of it lies. And we as an audience know it's a lie. Uh, and I think the people in the room know it's a lie. Uh, the undefeated uh, U.S. attorney says, like, you really think you're going to get a jury to buy that, you know, knowing that it's bullshit. And it's like not jury jurors. I just I just need one juror. Just one. one. Just one. Yeah. One. Yeah. All yeah. I need is one. All I need is one. So yeah. he is obviously playing some high stakes poker here. Well, he yeah, he's sitting I mean, on he's a pretty saying, winning hand. You have an immaculate record. Yes, exactly. Uh, you, know, you know, he sees that immaculate record and yep. he sees that as a thing to threaten. You know, you really want to put your immaculate record up against me? Heisenberg's lawyer you really think that I'm this soft target that you're just gonna roll over well get ready to pull up your sleeves because I'm not finished yet uh and seems to be enough to to get this guy to play ball uh that they are gonna negotiate him uh you know into a seven-year deal uh what do, what does he have to give up in order for that to, to go down, do you think, Antonio? Just, is he spilling the beans on literally everything he was ever a part of in order to plea down to seven years? I would imagine so, yeah. I would imagine he's giving the as much specific detail as he can about as much that, uh, that he can. Uh, and in, in general, I think the problem for the federal uh, authorities on this front is that they don't have anybody. Pinkman's gone. Walter's dead. Skyler really didn't know a ton. This he is the Rosetta Stone in a lot of ways that connects a lot of these dots. Mike Ermintrout is off the board as well. So he's the guy. He's the guy. He may be giving up the entire Albuquerque You're the criminal this. underworld. You're the guy for this. Yeah. Uh, so he he may be giving up the entire Albuquerque criminal underworld. He may be willing to decode the vet's black book. He may be willing to do all of that, give up everything he knew uh, in order to get as much as he can in Gosh. terms of uh, dealing. So, yeah, it's important for them. I mean, it's important for them because. Uh, like I said, they just don't have it and they need it. Like this is such a high profile thing. There were so many people involved. There are a ton of bodies associated with this. Uh, Jimmy can go all the way back, give up everything that happened in the desert in Bagman. He can give up what he knew, what he knew about the Lalo situation and Mike Ermintrout and Fring, who he knows as he who must not be named at that point, but probably knows as Gus Fring because of everything that happened afterwards. So he is a really, really good witness for this, a really good witness for this. And I do think it's important to multiple agencies of the government that we see represented here to wrap up as many of these details as possible. 
And seven years does seem a little lenient to me, but, uh, and of course the judge is going to take issue Most with that. Later. Generous thing she's seen. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, but I will say uh, it is something that Jimmy had a lot to give up would be my guess. And yeah. they're probably very desirous of wrapping a lot of these cases up. And like I said, you're talking about what at least 30 bodies would be my guess that are connected to this in one way, shape or form that Jimmy can give up. That's 30 open murder cases that they can close uh, because of what he's saying. That's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> That's a lot, especially for a guy who never pulled the trigger on any of them, right? Like for him to be able to give up 30 of them and have not having not been directly involved in them uh, in a way that like it feels gross to, to give him a break for telling the truth on them. You could see why he might have a lot of information here. Yeah, I'd love to like at some point in my life, not anytime imminently, but at some point in my life, I'd like to go back through Breaking Bad and think about every horrible thing that Saul Goodman directly knew and what he could take from that to help get him down from life plus 190 years down to seven years. Yeah, I want to just I, I would love to like sort of uh, like put actual numbers to each thing. Uh, that he knew what did he know of the Gus Fring empire that was able to get him to these respective points uh, I would love to just sort of like price that out well and uh, the fascinating thing going back and thinking about this season they had the opportunity to tell a lot more uh, Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad timeline stories and they did not and I'm I'm perfectly comfortable with what they did i'm i'm really satisfied very very satisfied with how all of that was handled i know some people wanted more of that and nippy at the time that it came out uh was a little bit of uh something that people were not comfortable with or they wanted to see more of breaking bad from the saul goodman perspective right uh and so because of that we don't really probably even know uh all that he might have been privy to uh, knowing full well that we, we know what we saw on Breaking Bad, but there was probably a lot more to it that he probably knew about. Uh, what else did like Spooge, Mike. Mr. Spooge do, you sure. know, and all these other people. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Or anybody that he was working with Mike, you know, we, we had a couple of, we had one scene where Mike is reporting back to him about various things, most of which was his client. He has the know, black book. He has the black book, which he knows active hitmen in and may or may not know crimes that they were involved in. If he's running point on that, uh, uh, so he has a lot to dish with, would be my guess. And we don't even really know beyond what we actively saw in Breaking Bad how much. But my guess is a lot. Yeah. Um, I think this is a good opportunity, by the way, Antonio, perhaps a fortuitous opportunity to talk about some of the commercials that were happening over the course okay. of uh, the live airing of Better Call Saul. Because it's uh, right in between the plea deal scene that we get uh, this, this uh, I would say, almost ominous warning from AMC uh, with the Better Call Saul music faintly in the background. We're in New Mexico. As AMC, I feel like, is almost threatening us, uh, Saul and Gus may be leaving, but Bob and Giancarlo are not. Straight Man and Parish coming 2023. Was this like a threat to not cancel AMC Plus? <laughs> I can't speak to that. Uh, I cannot speak to that. Perhaps, perhaps it was just like, don't forget about us. Don't leave your favorite network behind. We'll be here yeah. with all your faves, doing more stuff that you like. Uh, I do. Should I do we take a page? Should we take a page from their playbook right now and tell people don't unsubscribe from the Better Call Saul podcast oh, yeah. feed? Straight man. <laughs> 
Bears podcast coming 2023. Do you think that'll work? Yeah, might for you. Uh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> it might for you. You can try it. Can uh, try the it. next, the next commercial that I have in my notes from this block of time because I was antiating some of the commercials that were really just tickling me because there were so many commercials over the course of watching this episode of Better Call Saul. I know irony. Pot meet the kettle. Uh, Charlie Day cracking up in the Mountain Dew commercial. That killed me. Uh, I, I don't that was, remember that one. I don't he's just, that he, one. T- he takes a big sip of a Mountain Dew and he goes, ah, and it's this very sustained, satisfied noise. And then he like takes it a big breath and he goes, ah, and he just like gets cut off mid scream as he's screaming out the thrill of drinking a Mountain Dew. <laughs> and I don't know why it destroyed me. Maybe because of the late hour and knowing that we were going to be on a live podcast right after, but I was howling like a lunatic. That's very funny. Um, this was the most Gus Fring content we got in the episode, though, which is why I bring it up. Yeah. Gus Fring entirely absent uh, from the Better Call when did Saul. We, when did we wrap on Gus? Fun and games. His, and what... scene at, his scene at the wine bar is the final Gus Fring scene in Better Call Saul. Okay. So it's the wine bar. It's not him saying to Mike, like, and lawyers, like, what can we? Because that was before the wine bar when he says. Yeah. You know, when can we start building the super lab again and shut the door in Mike's face? I kind of part of me wonders if, you know, if there was a time machine and there could be some re-edits, uh, does it make more sense to have that come after the wine bar scene? Or is the wine bar scene of Gus Fring so focused on blood that he's looking at the blood wine? And that Sounds is the great. thing that is uh, fueling him forward into the rest of his storyline. Yeah. Is that the better way to go? But I, I really do like that ships in the night quality from Gus to Mike and then Mike. Mike's story ostensibly ends with him and Nacho's father. So I almost feel like that that sort of tunnel scene between the two of them, this sort of bridge between two guys who are leaving the show in that moment, though we didn't know it at the time. Um, I think I, I might have preferred that order to it, but it doesn't ultimately matter uh, all that much. Are you? Do you feel any kind of way that that was it for Gus, though? Or are you pretty good with how Better Call Saul handled both him and really Mike ultimately in the, in the grand scheme. What I was trying to figure out, um, and I don't know that I can, that I can really do it at this moment. And we can talk about this because I think with, uh, with Christian on Thursday, I think that uh, this is all part of the conversation. Uh, Christian really liked breaking bad and a better call Saul, of course, but liked better call Saul as a standalone. They didn't necessarily uh, need the, the breaking bad universe uh, to really appreciate or understand it. Uh, obviously that changes significantly as we get into the very late stages of this season but there's a world where you can hit a cutoff point at some point and i think that might be at the end of finding games right and and we've got the emergence of saul goodman he walks into his office and if that's the end of better call saul as we know it and everything that follows is some separate entity whether you want to make a joke and call it El Cagino uh, or whether it's part of some actual sequel to Breaking Bad. Uh, it feels together with Better Call Saul. Those are clearly Better Call Saul episodes, but they're doing a, a lot of different work that the main series of Better Call Saul did not do. So at some point, I think you can draw a line and say, if you want to watch all the episodes to this point, watch them all. You will appreciate and understand everything that you need to know in the context of this series. Then go watch Breaking Bad. 
Bad because we walked you right up to it. Uh, just walk on, do the rest of Breaking Bad, uh, and then come back and watch El Camino, followed by these next four episodes of Better Call Saul, and you'll see how it all ends. Yes. Uh, uh, so I think that's the order, uh, chronologically bad. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we could get to. Uh, as we are having this conversation right now, Post Show Recaps patron Jesse uh, was typing in the Discord about uh, wanting to do that exact thing. Uh, of wow, going and uh, said, curious what everyone thinks of the rewatch order would be. Uh, it's better call Saul up to fun and games, then Breaking Bad, then El Camino, and then the last four episodes yeah. of Saul. Uh, so that's what Jesse's about to go do. He's about to do the, like you said, chronologically bad. Uh, well, and that would, great. I wish that uh, that's not even chronologically bad, right? Because so many of these uh, sure, shows have yes. flashbacks. So, right. When's Walter going to get flashback to Gray Matter? Right, I like, think it's like we... it's like the machete order. It's the lightsaber order of the Star Wars yes. saga, right? Yes, yeah. yes, that yeah. that is correct. But it is not technically in chronological order, but it is in a little bit of a cut up order that I think will really be a, a very fun way to take it in uh, and to experience yeah. the entirety of the of the project is that way, uh, and so. We'll, we we get reminders of that, of course. We get reminders of the 10 men that were murdered in a prison on October 4th, 2009, and how a lawyer was stabbed 48 times. And we get Jimmy in this scene, and I love the, you know, what they're deep in the negotiation and all the food laying out on the table. And Bill Oakley, as, as Jimmy has kind of fired his final salvo here with this, uh, you can kill a lawyer and all that. Bill Oakley's looking at, looking out of the side of his eyes at the other side of the table like, are they buying this? It's yes. going to go. Uh, and that's when the one juror con- uh, conversation kind of happens. And Jimmy really looks like Al Capone uh, in these scenes. That's something that I took away, uh, that he he has a very Al Capone look when he's got the no mustache, the no mustache and the, the comb-backed thinning hair uh, and the sort of prison kind of vibe. He, he reminds me of Al Capone uh, in these moments. And so it is... Uh, it's interesting that uh, throughout the negotiation, it ends with the sweetener of Howard Hamlin. Uh, and then that's something that takes he, he no longer has hand at this point uh, because that takes him by surprise that Kim sold that out already. Yeah. So the again, like this mask falls off there. Is this up until this point, at least until the um, the almost losing everything for a pint of Blue Bell ice cream? Other than that, is this the best night of Bill Oakley's life? <laughs> I can't speak to you that. You see all of the food on the table, all those delicious trans fats that have Good transpired. Point. Good point. Yeah, he's probably he had like loving a whole that. pizza box right next to him. It seems like he ate the whole flipping thing. Yeah, maybe, maybe this could be one of the best nights of his life for sure. And he is going to look like a king. Yeah. If he if, he, if he's get, if he gets attached to this, talked all the way down to seven years, kind of nonsense. Yeah, it's going to look uh, like a king. He will. He will indeed. Okay, so this is now the Granite State scene. Uh, we go from him pleading down to seven years to this moment that takes place right around Granite State and Breaking Bad. Uh, here's Walt going around, screwdrivering things, trying to get everything working because he can't just let it go. Uh, we get into yet another time travel conversation. And speaking of time travel, Antonio, this scene is one of the very first things that was shot in the entire final season of Better Call Saul. I don't know yes. how much we talked about this before, but it came out on the Insider podcast this time around. 
um, that all of the Walt and Jesse scenes were shot in what? April 2021, I think is what they said. Somewhere around there. But long before they had started filming, you know, most of the rest of the season. They shot the season out of sequence. Um, but this is some of the earliest point stuff, including last week's scene, Waterworks, when Kim and Jesse are together. Ray Seahorn is having to play that knowing that she's going to get divorced from Jimmy later in the season. So you have to like access that place emotionally. That's a really tricky um, editing magic and production magic that's uh, that, that's happening this season. Very tricky. Very yeah. tricky. And you got to give full credit to all the actors that were involved in all those scenes to to find the particular place and the time in their heads. Uh, and of course, they didn't even have sides. They didn't have pages from the script uh, to work with uh, on like on the rest of the scripts from these episodes. They had these scenes and they had a rough idea of what is happening. So it isn't like Kim got to read the whole script for the episode where she's shooting the scene with Jesse. It wasn't written. Uh, it wasn't broken. She got a vague idea of what was coming. Uh, the script was still being worked on. So they've got the scene and they had to have that scene ready. Uh, but as far as her having understood the entire moral arc of the character, she wasn't there yet. Uh, so she did the best she could. Uh, and I think she did a fantastic job. We love that scene. Uh, and of course, I love this scene, but very difficult for these actors, I think, being put in this position where they're shooting without real knowledge of everything that got them to that point uh, with just a little bit of loose knowledge. Obviously, a little easier uh, for what Bob Odenkirk is dealing with uh, because he can play the surface level responses, at least in this scene that Saul Goodman would have been experiencing at the time of Granite State from Breaking Bad. Still difficult because it's been so long since they shot that, um, but at least he could at least tap into that. But the subtext of it is so difficult to pull off and play uh, because the subtext of why this scene is in this episode and why it's happening now and how that relates to what's going on with Jimmy. I think you'd love to see some hints of that in Bob's performance or you'd like to see it, it, it not reflect. Uh, with the opposite. Uh, but if you don't understand what the opposite is, then how do you not reflect it? How do you present the opposite? How do you present anything? Uh, so very tricky for these actors in the, in the scenes like this, for, tricky for everyone involved. And they had to, Josh, uh, in the case of the Chuck one later, rebuild Chuck's house. Right. The yeah, set had from been the ground torn up. down. <laughs> yeah, they burned it, remember? They burned it up. They yeah. burned it up. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not quite literally, but uh, yeah, the set had been destroyed. They didn't think they were going to use Chuck again. So not only are they having to write these scenes and perhaps in some cases shoot them out of sequence, they're having to reconstruct old sets. Yeah. Now with, with the Winnebago, it gave them the opportunity to do more, to build an actual set and to have a bigger interior and to spend that money. Uh, but with Chuck's place, it's just probably just like such a pain in the ass. Well, it's it's funny that you you say, uh, you know, shooting, uh, you know, out of sequence. It's, it's just, to you know, in the Insider podcast, Bob Odenkirk has lots of questions for Peter Gould at the start of it about uh, – were you worried I think that it was this a was bit. an action pack? I think it was a bit as well. Um, I didn't I didn't read it in any major way as uh, Bob Odenkirk feeling dissatisfied with the finale at all. But there's you know there's no real combustibles in the same way that there were in Breaking Bad here, and yet there are so many ways in which the budget is used so brilliantly on this season of the show, and it's invested rather than you know pyrotechnics and a huge Gatling gun killing a building filled with white supremacists. Instead, that money is going towards things like 
rebuilding these really difficult to replicate sets for single scenes. The RV, uh, Chuck's house in this case, uh, and that's where the money is going. And it's not all about the money, right? It's about what's inside the, you know, in, in inside the the soul of this show. And that's what they're reproducing across these fran uh, across this whole franchise in this episode. Um, is is really like you're replicating Bagman and getting Jimmy and Mike back into getting Bob Odenkirk and Jonathan Banks into like the makeup and the costuming and the moment uh, is just is so impressive to me and just such a smart use of budget that. Rather than investing in effects and investing in this this big climactic, uh, you know, visceral, violent, pulp fictiony ending, they are investing in what this show has been—a character study. Uh, and I, I just love the way that 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 plays out. Even great here, call. you know, replicating Granite State in yeah. in so many ways is just really, really, really great. That this show is a time machine. It is a time capsule of a sort. It's the bottle in which the wine is aging. Uh, it is prequel and it is sequel. It is timeless. Uh, it is very specific to a time. Uh, I think the way that time interplays with the production of the show, we've been remarking upon this over the last couple of weeks as we've been uh, walking through the raindrops of Breaking Bad and seeing a 40-year-old Aaron Paul playing an 18-year-old Jesse Pinkman, that there are ways in which the weathering of real life on these people has infiltrated the show and the language of the show and the filmmaking style, the increased levels of competency and, um, you know, um, excellence in the produ in the production and the people who make this thing, that to see that also reflected budgetarily, you know, uh, monetarily in replicating some of these set pieces that are just as important to the language of the show and the soul and the themes of these two shows uh, as any character, characters in their own right, and the way that the island is on Lost. I just think it's such a wise use of the money. And I think that when people say that this finale was boring or if people say this finale was boring and it it missed a, you know, it lacked a certain amount of oomph. Um, I see the oomph for sure. Uh, I see the dollars spent and I think that they're spent really, really, really geniusly. I think that's a great, great observation. Uh, and I do think that Bob Odenkirk's bit or jokes at the beginning. And I, I hope it was a bit. Peter Gold seemed to respond in a funny enough way that I assumed that this was pretty common banter. Uh, Peter Gold's like, okay, yeah, go on. That's just one pickup. That's great. Uh, we can get one shot in there and, and, and change it up. Sure, we got that. I got a cell phone. We can shoot right away. Like, I think he was playing along and having fun with it. But um, I think you're right that there might be some disappointment that we didn't get uh, something more, but that wouldn't have been true to most of this show. Now, we had some crazy boffo like action scenes and intense things that happened on this show don't get me wrong nacho shoot out at the the motel uh in this final season a great example of that and there were others throughout of course in bagman uh and and throughout but uh that has not always been the show the show has been the conversations in chuck's house uh by lantern light right or by natural light coming in or what was meant to be natural light uh the show has always been uh these lingering moments and these moments of character uh and so we're investing in that uh, and i love that i love that um let me ask you this when walt and jimmy have this conversation which we already talked about a little bit here uh and walt is is willing to be vulnerable and is is granting that he can talk about gray matter even though he's not being fully honest and not being completely forthright uh, he he's willing to talk something specific uh, that is a button for him. Uh, and Jimmy is not. Uh, and Walt basically is response to that. So you were always like this as yeah. to the slip and fall. And that one, I think, really hurt Jimmy. And he has to live with that one. Um, is that really your takeaway from this scene is that that Jimmy uh, people have been putting him in his place and telling him who he is 
for such a long time that it's a matter of him accepting it, him accepting that you, no one's going to see you as the lawyer who they're going to use for these uh, above-the-table negotiations. You can tell people on that prison bus your name is McGill, and they're going to be chanting Saul Goodman within 30 seconds because you're not McGill. You're Saul Goodman. That's who people know you as. You're not the guy for this. You're not the guy for gray matter. Right. I, I don't know. I think him accepting who he is is a huge part of the the journey of this finale without regret, right? It's accepting it, saying I, I'm not going to look back on the past and say I wish I would have done this differently. Uh, you can do that in the moment, but in order to progress, you have to look forward to the future. Uh, and so I do think that this scene has a large part of that. It's just like you, Walt even makes it very clear it's about regret as the first scene was. Right. Jimmy's still not willing to get on that page. Yeah, I think that's a great read. And I think that him, uh, you know, carrying that into whatever exists for him beyond the finale. Uh, I know that in a lot of the conversations about this, again, all of this, uh, you know, this pre the post episode press uh, surrounding the finale. I think a lot of the actors have interpretations of where things go from here. I think one of the things that Odenkirk wants to believe for Jimmy McGill is that he is a good lawyer to the people in this prison, that he's well loved in here and that he helps them because these are people who he can speak their language. He is versed in the types of troubles that they are facing and that he not just does like good work for them, but potentially great work for them as well. And does that even probably with the Saul Goodman moniker that he doesn't have to wear as a point of pride. He doesn't have to place a value judgment on it in order to move forward, but he does have to acknowledge its existence and he has to get right with that. Um, so whether or not he will in the long term get right with the fact that he will forever in the eyes of others be Saul Goodman, criminal lawyer, um, you know, he at least has to be okay with it. Uh, and hopefully he is. That's that's my hope for him for sure beyond the scope of this show. Uh, but I think that there is this moment when Walt is saying that of like, you'd be the last lawyer I'd go to that in the in the subsequent watch of the episode. It, it hits Jimmy, but it doesn't like hit him uh, as hard as some of the harder hits we've seen him take over the course of the show. There is almost this like very quick resignation to that idea of like, yeah, OK, you know, uh, so it's almost he's all he's already crawling towards that even back here in Granite State. It's going to be a slow state to get to that level of acceptance, uh, but he is on the way uh, in uh, the spirit of more discord feedback, Antonio, live as it's happening. Again, this is very, very eerie time travel type stuff that Shawnee is currently watching the finale and posted a message, message that is talking about this specific scene once again. Uh, so from Shawnee, he had said uh, at 831, four minutes ago, Antonio, Walter White coming for time travel really proves what a monster he is. <laughs> it is very funny when he just i there were a couple i had maybe three or four laugh out loud moments in this episode and uh, walter's just exasperated quantum mechanics are we discussing that now mm -hmm. it's so funny it's just yeah. such classic walter he's so over it this is exactly how he responds to jesse stay in your lane stay like, in your this lane is, this is who walter is do you it's, love this as a final uh walter white scene uh probably very likely uh hard to imagine it's not the final walter white scene that will ever get interesting uh i i do like it i like that he's got a, a hint of regret but not enough uh vulnerability to admit uh his real role in it uh to kind of recast it as himself as the victim walter was always the victim in his stories right walter was always the persecuted walter was always the one 
uh, being challenged. And uh, he was always the one who was suffering at the hands of some injustice, uh, whether small or large. So to have that be something that's present, even in a moment of vulnerability for him and uh, cast that against the backdrop of, of you observing last night that he could never just sit still and not be trying to tinker with something or fix something or yeah, feel it's like, like he's working his way out of a problem. It's like Jimmy living with silence. He just can't do it. Can't do it. Yeah. Can't do it. He's he's scribbling his name on the wall, even if he has to sit around and be quiet or is breaking down and laughing in a very similar situation later. So, yeah, I like that the idea that this captures a lot of what Walter was like uh, and the essence of Walter. If you're talking about summing up Walter in a scene, uh, this does a good job of it for sure. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So we leave the Granite State flashback by way of a flash sideways uh, to the airplane with Gene on his way uh, to the rest of his life. And I say the flash sideways because this shot felt very much like the season six premiere of Lost uh, and coming into the alternate Oceanic 815 flight with Jack Shepard. It looked so similar. April and I had the same thought at the exact same time. So if you're a super nerd for Lost, it's really hard not to see it that way. So I just had to give some... uh, so right. shout out to that right. uh anything else from bill and jimmy here i mean we we're we're now about to really get into the kim stuff um i don't know that there's too much here from this specific scene of jimmy talking with the marshall president the and... marshall's last name was mccaleb hopefully oh, I right leave yeah. a shout out to the host of the insider podcast the co-host of the insider podcast and the one of the editors of better call Saul, chris yes. mccaleb yes. uh thank we thank chris for all the podcasts throughout the course i mean i the insider podcast such a good source of information nice tribute i'm gonna uh, miss it dearly uh yeah. very very dearly great podcast nice that very good tribute very good tribute to have a character named after him and he jokes on the insider podcast this week uh that's where we're gonna get the spinoff right mm-hmm. marshall mccaleb yeah. you know? it's like man, so very <laughs> Very funny. And I, yeah. I just, I, I mean, I can't get enough Bill Oakley. That's all I can say. Yeah. Yep. 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 Okay. So we're going to go into Kim territory now, uh, where she is still even on the other side of uh, everything in Albuquerque and starting to make amends in whatever way she can, uh, or at least accountability, owning accountability for the Howard Hamlin of it all. Uh, she's still in this place where she's uh, not able to speak decisively, uh, where we're, we're hearing about Josh, the twin, who uh, they're trying to determine whether or not they're going to go to Red Lobster or this new restaurant, Tapaki, I believe was the name. Uh, and she can't even weigh in on whether or not anyone would like that restaurant. But it's really short lived before she is uh, at the attorney's office. 
and she is working for the Central Florida Legal Aid as a volunteer on the phones. I'm meant to clock this that when we get to the office at night and she gets the call from D.A. Erickson, I meant to clock if she was wearing the same clothes that she was wearing in um, the scene previous when she first shows up to the office was this the same day was this just later in the day or would there have been some sort of sign that indicates she's been at this for a minute i didn't clock it i forgot I didn't to either. write it down i think um, it was the same but i'm not sure uh either way i i wrote in my notes um i wrote in my notes uh i find this dream rather unsympathetic she played herself and I think I'm still mad. I was still mad at Kim uh, for even walking into this finale. Of course, I was mad at Jimmy as well. Uh, but I'm still mad at Kim over the Hamlin scam. Uh, and I don't know that I'll ever feel great Howard about Scamlin. Howard Scamlin, about how everything went down there uh, so that when she's walking into this legal aid and seeing uh, what she could have had, or what could have been uh, a you know, legal clinic or a legal services business uh, that she could have gotten some actual over-the-table money for uh, from large nonprofit organizations. And she had the capability and the connections to really make something like this pop in Albuquerque and in New Mexico. Uh, and she went for the shortcut. She went for the easier way out or the more thrilling way out and she went for a way out that was going to cause character damage to Howard Hamlin at a minimum and that she had decided in her own uh, moral scales uh, balanced out just fine uh, and I so I find it I'm not like rooting for Kim in this moment seeing her in this clinic I'm not like oh thank God she finally got what she wanted I'm like you could have had this a very easy way and everything that happened after is at least in part due to the fact that that you and jimmy chose differently right uh so i i'm not i don't have as much sympathy for her in this moment i still don't feel good about uh what's happening with kim here i think i will get there by the end of the episode uh i think i'm there now but i'm not in this moment not in this moment yeah uh, so she gets the call from da erickson D.A. Erickson says, I shouldn't be talking to you. Considering everything, I think it's right. You know what's going on. Uh, and she tells uh, she tells uh, Kim that there is some testimony that's going to affect Kim personally. And one thing that I really appreciated here on this, uh, this rewatch of the episode today is that we don't know what kind of testimony. The phone call doesn't continue. We are on yet another phone call that is one-sided where we are not hearing the volume at all, looking through a window. But Kim Wexler doesn't kick or break anything. Uh, you know, it's a little different from how it goes down in Breaking Bad. Just a little different. <laughs> Just a little different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't start home invading anyone. As far as we know, uh, she does uh, do some prison breaking later in the episode. A real play uh, from the from the Michael Schofield playbook. You wonder if she's going to show up in the Rockies of Al the Alcatraz of the Rockies with a full blueprint tattooed uh, on her at some point in the future. <laughs> you know better than I in that front. I'm the mm -hmm. Wentworth Miller stand. <laughs> I, I could tell you all about it. Um, we go to the Saul Goodman perp walk. Uh, very, uh, very pointedly on the insider, there is discussion of this being the final walk of Saul Goodman. He walks into the room, but the man who's going to walk out is James McGill. Uh, we uh, have uh, Elvis Presley singing us along here. You like hearing from Elvis here in the finale? I did not realize that that was Elvis at all. I believe all. that's right. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I think that uh, I think that uh, I used Shazam and it said all things are possible by the harmonizing four. But 
is Elvis Presley in the Harmonizing Four? I, didn't I could be completely wrong about this. Uh, uh, maybe we got different versions. Who knows? Uh, yeah. But uh, either way, either way, I uh, I liked the uh, the walk up, and like I said, the the shark skin Saul, the uh, the shiny suit, him looking for Kim, him finding Kim, close up of her feet going sixty miles an hour, uh, and the it's showtime, the callback to the beginning of the the very beginning of the series, uh, the first we see Jimmy McGill in that bathroom practicing and then saying it's showtime a line that he has used subsequently uh having him do that and bill oakley kind of look at him like what the hell are you talking about uh seeing the united states versus saul goodman which could have easily been a title of the episode if we didn't want to spoil anything totally you know what i mean like this uh it feels like that that is uh the vibe here it feels like we're getting uh its own episode or its own thing with us versus saul goodman this moment uh one of the series uh in a series known for them um one of the very significant courtroom scenes in better call saul is about to unfurl uh and unspool itself uh as we watch bill oakley and saul goodman buttoning their suits and standing in unison. Incredible stuff here. I just love Bill Oakley <laughs> as the proto Saul Goodman. I'm, I'm here for all of it. Motion Starting to withdraw. Yes. So good. So good. Denied. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Once he realizes what's going on uh, and Jimmy, even like a real of a, a real, uh, you know, blending of the different characters that he has become along the way, who he authentically is kind of comes out this moment where he tells the judge, uh, trust me, uh, with no offense. I think I, I know the law here better than you do. It's like a really wild thing to say to the judge who is about to literally 86 your seven year deal. Uh, so this is a scene that I will really enjoy going back to over the course of the years. Odin Kirk's just, uh, you know, the confidence that he is bringing sort of like the serenity to James Morgan McGill in this moment. I also love that full reclamation of his name, James McGill, in the same way that Chuck in this system is Charles McGill. You know, let's formalize this thing. I am worthy of that level of self-respect. There's a lot of little nitty gritties in, in here that, we could spend a ton of time unpacking. Um, I think we've already talked so much about what's baked into this. Any other, you know, light of day observations you have about uh, this this scene for you? I uh, I really liked that as an audience member. I didn't know uh, if he was going to pull the same con. One thing I will say is um, I think there's some stuff that happens in between him getting off that plane and him walking into that courtroom. He had some subsequent conversations with the government, the it's really good ice cream stuff Mm -hmm. and the stuff about Hamlin. He very clearly spun a tale about Howard, about Kim Wexler's role in the Howard Hamlin situation and maybe put her really in the crosshairs that she's literally in when we see that shot in the courtroom. That's why Erickson calls her, not because of anything we saw on screen in the previous proffers uh, and discussions of settlement or negotiations, but in something that happens after he gets off that plane. He spins a tale about Kim Wexler in the Howard Hamlin situation that gets Erickson alerted uh, that he's been saying some stuff about her or about Kim. Uh, that's why Erickson calls Kim. Uh, and then, of course, he backs away from it. Uh, and he says something in like all that stuff I told the government about Kim Wexler being in the Hamlin thing. That was all just me trying to get her here. That that didn't really happen. And so I think it's important that uh, for people that are trying to connect the dots here, there is a dot missing. Like there was a scene that is just not in the episode of some extended conversation between jimmy and the government we just gapped that he we just gapped it we just completely gapped it so that stood out to me on the second watch more than it did on the first watch through 
Uh, I also really, really liked uh, then Jimmy basically taking credit for the whole Walter White empire, um, which I was also taking responsibility for it. Uh, and then saying, Kim left town, but I'm the one who ran away. Uh, bringing up Charles McGill, the exit sign. Uh, Kim is in the exit sign. Uh, I like the buzz from the exit sign. The exit sign a little on the nose for me, but there's there there's... were a couple of cutesy things in the finale yeah. for sure. This is a cutesy thing in the finale for me. I do I do love the idea of uh, Kim was the one who left, but I'm the one who ran away. But it is also kind of a cute line, I think. And I'm still I'm still not in the place where I think that the the Better Call Saul chant is anything other than kind of cute uh, in in the light of day. But that yeah, could we, change. That could we still can talk about it in a in a in a brief in brief yeah. in a moment. But mm-hmm. uh, I I think you could have I think it's just mainly that the we we saw the exit sign in the middle of his speech. I think if we had seen that sort of as an end to that as a button to that scene. That way, Chuck could have been a witness to it in that way. Uh, he could have been uh, that as his his totem representing him hanging over the empty courtroom. Uh, maybe that would have been a thing that this was Jimmy's exit and that this reference or reference to Chuck was present there. Uh, I, there's a way that we do that. I think maybe it was just the, the placement of it. I didn't necessarily didn't hit for me as as much as maybe I, do, I think it could have. I do like that idea, though, that he's there, right? You know, that Jimmy's taking him along for yeah. the rest of this. I'll live with that. I'll live with him like the yep. ghost of my brother is with me. And so he's here yep. uh, that I, I think that that's nice. I, I like that. I think that's cool. It is still a little cute, but I, I like the idea of it. The force the, uh, of Chuck McGill. The uh, the Bill Oakley saying, "Why'd you do that thing with say that thing with your brother? That wasn't even a crime." Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, and then the name is McGill. I'm James McGill. Those two things are super important. They're the most important parts in the scene, really, because they tell us as an audience, "This isn't a con. He's 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 different. Like something has changed, and something changed in him probably on." Uh, the long trip. It starts with them telling him, oh, you thought that you had something with the Hamlin thing. Ah, they're laughing at him, you know, in the negotiations. Like Kim came in a month ago. I guess you don't talk to her that much anymore. Uh, But she came in a month ago and she put it on record with an affidavit uh, that everything that happened with the Hamlin situation. Mm -hmm. So I think from that point on, he starts to think, okay, like if she's willing to take responsibility for this, if she's willing to step up and claim, I got it, I have to do this. I have to do this so he walks away uh i'm james mcgill uh and and i think he was being sincere in that moment in his quiet moment to bill yes it was it was a crime and i'm james mcgill uh then we go right to chuck so chuck was a ghost yes he's present he's present in top of mind here and one of the things that I really love about that transition as well is when we are in the Chuck scene um, that the first spoken dialogue from uh, Chuck, I believe, yes, is did you ground yourself? Did you ground yourself? Yep. Uh, and indeed he did. He punished you know? himself. Yep. Uh, he grounded himself in the in the in the moment coming into the house. Uh, but he grounded himself in the courthouse as well. Yep. Uh, and yep. I, I love that connection. Loved also, it. Chuck has the line of I was starting to get worried about you because yep. he had been so late uh so were we we were getting really worried about what the what the future could hold for this character and was there anything even remotely resembling uh you know a silver lining coming our way um so i I do love the way in which um we are we are using this scene with chuck 
to kind of give us, uh, you know, a little bit of catharsis here as we're as we're winding down. Um, I had uh, one person who I know in my life who did not love the finale, who felt like this scene with Chuck felt like it was uh, like a retcon almost that felt like it was really out of sync with Jimmy and Chuck's relationship throughout the show. Uh, and I just I completely reject that. I, I feel like this scene with Jimmy and Chuck is one of my favorites from a from an episode that I really, really just loved top to bottom. Um, getting this reunion of Bob Odenkirk and Michael McKeon together to close out the show when back in the day, all the way back back when I was not a regular fixture on this podcast, but was so lucky to come on to talk chicanery with you in season three, talking about how Jimmy and Chuck were the central relationship of the show. And he's been gone for three full freaking seasons. He, he was completely gone in all of season five uh, and to get him so present here and then to get him literally present in here. It was one of those moments of um, not the thing that I knew that I wanted, but ultimately a thing that I, I really I think we all needed was to get this this moment of closure, or at least that the show needed this. This re relationship was so important that to take this moment out of time where we know everything that comes next for these two guys, but still there can be a nugget of wisdom and a nugget of progress that existed back then that can be reapplied to now uh, and can be used for not going back, but for going forward. I love the existence of this scene in that direction. I think it's so good. It's same. And I also really like the Chuck. We always end up having the same conversation, don't we? It's not a retcon that the brothers were on decent terms at this time in their history. Go back and watch the beginning of the series and you'll see. Yes, Chuck does not love the fact that Jimmy is a lawyer. And yes, Chuck has tried to block him from getting employed at HHM. But Chuck is simultaneously trying to really encourage him to be a good lawyer, to be the different kind of lawyer, to get there with hard work, to get there with positive reputation, to do all the things that Jimmy ultimately didn't really do uh, to get good as Saul Goodman. Uh, he's telling him, you just got to slug it out. You really just got to love the law for the law. And you have to let that be the thing that makes you interested in being a lawyer. And he was on good terms with Jimmy on that front, at least good enough that Jimmy would come to him when he needed him good enough that when Jimmy was at his lowest, uh, Jimmy would go there, that he was very protective of Chuck. Uh, when you see slipping Jimmy uh, through the eyes of addiction, he was trying to hide his addiction from Chuck. It's not what you think, you know, oh, I was holding that for a friend. Those papers aren't what you think, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, these brothers were still on those kind of terms at the beginning of the series. It, it only is the end of season one where it really blows up. So I really do love the moments where they can, and communicate almost on the level with one another, almost on an honest level. And what I really love about that is even when they're on decent terms, we always end up having the same conversation. They're too different as human beings, even though they're brothers, uh, to really be able to connect on a deep level of understanding other than understanding their, their very nature. Chuck is he's demanding. He's exacting. He's domineering. Uh, Jimmy is shifty. He's slippery. Uh, he's willing to do kind of whatever it takes uh, to get what he wants, uh, including up to and including bending uh, Chuck's great moral laws, you know, and so in that particular world, um, these brothers were always going to end up having the same conversation. 
even when they're on good terms, they can't really conversate. They can't really communicate. When Chuck asks Jimmy to stick around in this scene, Jimmy immediately assumes the worst. Not only is Chuck just going to tell him everything that he's doing wrong or hector him in that way, um, he just it's going to be a negative conversation. And Chuck sort of sadly says, well, that wasn't the approach I had in mind. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it yeah. probably would have ended up that way, right? Because that's how it always ends up. Uh, and so for the two of them, even if they're on good terms and even if they're good, uh, they always end up having the same conversation because what is between them runs so deep and it is so steeped in history uh, that there is kind of no really getting away from it. There is only acceptance, unconditional love and progress, hopefully, uh, that we just don't see throughout the course of their relationship that Jimmy carries a lot of regret around uh, about. And it is coming to grips with that uh, regret, I think, that will allow him to grow, hopefully. Yeah. Um, again, just in the spirit of bringing in messages that are happening as we are recording. Uh, into somebody, the if somebody's talking about this scene now, like I'm just uh, going to unplug ago, every device in 11, my house. 11 minutes ago. Somebody's watching. Uh, 11 minutes ago from Fiona. <laughs> from Fiona. From Fiona to the BCS at postshowrecaps.com hotline wrote in and said, can you guys live with the fact that everyone still thinks Chuck made a transposition error? Because I can't. <laughs> there was justice for chuck we had another email that came in i can't remember when but it was the 1216 or 1261 mm -hmm. i didn't know if that one was serious uh jimmy should jimmy should own up to that jimmy you should know, put, the, put that yeah. in the put, tell oakley to put that in the story is that not a crime to confess i guess all that stuff was on the record but uh you know it didn't uh it didn't bear out in a way that uh jimmy was proven you know uh that he had done what he had done in the photocopier and everything so maybe he could have taken a minute to just like oh and by the way it totally was one after magna carta i absolutely uh i rat effed my brother in that moment as well uh, i mean like know? i said let bill oakley put that in the jimmy mcgill story yeah, well, Bill Oakley interrupted him, uh, you know, doing his uh, chunk from Goonies bit. And maybe that's why it didn't end up being in there because he had like a thought and it, it got uh, he, he escaped the thought it's when gone. he makes that when he makes the movie later. It'll be yeah, in there. Chuck, be Chuck in will there. be uh, Chuck will be lionized or represented positively in that way. Hopefully, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, OK, Jimmy in the prisoner truck. Everybody recognizes him. Hey, you're Saul, right? Better call Saul. He says, I'm McGill. I'm McGill. Don't give me that. You're Saul. It's better call Saul. And we have the big better call Saul chanting. And uh, I don't know. You got any thoughts on, on this? Yeah. Is, I mean, it's aging well for you. I, it didn't. It wasn't bad the first go, but mm -hmm. I understand there are people that don't like this scene and we've gotten some feedback about it. And people have the right to feel how they want to feel. I think when you make the show, you're making it for everybody. Uh, and I do think that there are probably some people in the audience uh, there are definitely still some people who are very upset that he ended up in prison uh, because prison's a terrible place to be. Totally. I get that. Um, so I do think that this scene at least helped me understand that he would jail really well, that these people liked him, that they would respect him, that they would see him as somebody that they're chanting his name. Uh, so this is a guy that has a lot of cred. Uh, and even in what he calls the Alcatraz of the Rockies, uh, uh, and even in a place that he did not want to go, that he thought would be a hellhole, and that this was his worst outcome, uh, he is going to be okay. And I think this scene, more than the scene later, where we get a little bit of that, where we get some, he's dapping somebody up that's helping him with the bakery stuff. I got pointing you, Saul. At, yeah. Pointing at somebody else across the prison. Uh, he's got some confidants there, clearly. He's, he's slid in fine. 
I think this scene really shows that these are his people. And I think it shows that he can say I'm McGill all he wants. He can't run from Saul Goodman. He has to embrace the fact that he's also Saul Goodman to a lot of people who know him as Saul Goodman. It doesn't mean he has to be Saul Goodman or be defined by that. As long as he sees himself as McGill, that's fine. But these are people who like him, who celebrate him, and who are celebrating him and seeing him, even when he tells them opposite, as Saul Goodman. He cannot hide from that. Uh, he That die is cast. It could so, be a suit on the rack, right? Yeah, it's you a know, suit on the rack, yeah. He's got, he's got a wardrobe now, and just as Batman has a tool for every occasion, you know, there's utility to wearing Saul Goodman from time to time. And there may well be, uh, there may well be uh, with uh, him in, in prison. Uh, Kim shows up. And we have the scenes with Kim. I think a big takeaway from this is we don't get a lot in terms of the scene. Bob Odenkirk's bit at the beginning of the Insider podcast is like, ah, why don't you have her slipping him a serrated spoon? Right. Yes. And we understand he's going to dig his way out with it. Yeah. Why don't we have that? Uh, Andy Dufresne this thing. Why don't we have that? Why don't we have Kim playing a part? And I think the reason we don't have that is that's a major regression for Kim, right? Uh, but Kim, also, it's just very hokey, and it's not the show. Yeah, Kim. Well, talk about that for sure. Yes, Kim uh, in Ray Seahorn, the actress who plays Kim, suggested in interviews that her view of this is that she's going to do all she can, Kim Wexler, within the bounds of fairness, not being, not breaking any rules. Uh, but she's going to do all she because she breaks rules to even get in there uh, with her bar card that doesn't have an expiration date. She represents herself as an attorney uh, and gets in the door when she is, in fact, not an attorney, as we said last night. Uh, and so she's already breaking rules. But I think it would be too big of a rule to break to say, I'm going to break this guy out of jail. But what she what Ray Seahorn's version of this is she Wexler's going to do all she can uh, to help him reduce that sentence. And I got to tell you. Saul Goodman, Jimmy McGill, James McGill, he will get out of prison. <laughs> like this guy knows how to find a mark. He knows how to play an angle better. He's elite. He is like among the best characters we've ever seen in that regard. You look up Albuquerque con man on Google or ask Jeeves. This is what you're getting. He'll yeah, come but right only up. If you're looking to really railroad your cat meme videos that you've been enjoying. Yeah. You screw up the algorithm big time. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you really yeah. do. Yeah. You, you never really get those cats it. back. You never get those cats. You're going to get cat con men at best, at best. Uh, but that's um, a very different, dangerous sort. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's true. Like a Albuquerque yeah. cat con man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah please don't, tell me what shows up i don't want to know i want that to live in my head let me define the terms of it correct uh but if he wants to get out of jail this guy's going to get out of jail when he is ready i believe he will find a way look he'll work angles he'll find things that are incorrect in the prison he'll use those to to bring actions to chip years off of his this guy that 86 years within 10 years is probably going to be 10 years is my guess he's going to find a way to make this work but he has to pay in his own mind i think he has to pay some penance for what he did he has to take some responsibility take some acceptance like i said last night very notable to me that he's doing almost the same job as gene gene was a prison anyway and it was a prison where he constantly lived in fear of being caught that's gone that's gone now he doesn't have to seemingly worry about all the other horrors of prison because he's well known and respected and liked character uh so it maybe is going is not going to go so poorly for him and it sounds to me like the views of the characters involved are going to be or the actors that played the characters are going to be that this guy's getting out peter gould said it on the insider podcast he said look 86 years that's not happening 
But I think this guy, you know who he is. You know what he does. He's getting out of jail at some point. Right. Uh, Odenkirk thinks that uh, that Jimmy and Kim are going to continue to see each other as well. Uh, he has said in press that he thinks that they would continue to see each other like annually every other year. Ray Seahorn is talking about how she uh, still she still believes that Kim um, not only still has love in her heart for Jimmy, but she feels fairly emphatically that that's not the final time that Jimmy and Kim share the same space together. Right. Uh, you know, kind of uh, I said to you in text, like sort of like anti Carrie Coon on the leftovers finale of like, no, she'll tell you her opinion on what she thinks is happening here. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> So, so Ray Seahorn is not letting that live like in your imagination of what she thinks is going to happen. She thinks that there is still this sort of, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll say romantic future for Jimmy and Kim, while not necessarily meaning like romance, romance. Uh, you know, I think that there is still this this idealistic viewpoint of the two of them now that they have gone their separate ways and have found their way to this moment that perhaps there is they have found their way back to each other to some degree. And this was something that we talked about, obviously, in our first reactions of the way that color was used in the black and white timeline here. That little spark, that little connection that is still alive, shared between the two of them uh, as they're as they're uh, sharing this final moment between them. The final bit of dialogue that we do get in the entirety of Better Call Saul is to your point of 86 years, but with good behavior. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, and what is good behavior for Saul Goodman, uh, for James McGill, for Jimmy McGill, for Gene Takovic? Uh, the definition might differ for all four of them. But I think for James McGill, um, he cannot lose sight of his responsibility uh, and his role in everything that happened throughout both shows. He has to continue to take responsibility for that or it's not good behavior. And I do think that he's crossed. He's not flipped good his, behavior. I don't agree I don't with care it. about it. Yeah, but. not that year. Um, I do think that uh, I, I do think that uh, he's crossed. He's that switch is not getting unflipped. It's not the uh, the switch at the beginning of season two in switch where Jimmy insists on flipping it, uh, even though it says don't flip it at Davis and Maine. Uh, once he flipped the switch and took his responsibility, I don't think he's turning it off. I think that uh, he has that something has changed with him. I do. I do believe that. Uh, final shot of the whole show is the two of them outside. He's on the basketball court. She is leaving. He shoots the finger guns at her. I don't remember the sound I made before, so I can't even mimic it if I wanted to. I was touche touche, I believe. I believe that's right. Touche touche. That's right. Uh, summoning uh, better call Stan. Uh, better stand stand. Uh, Kim does not re uh, reciprocate the gesture, but there were versions of this shot where she did. Oh, apparently, interesting. Interesting. Uh, is what I've been reading today. Uh, I think that they felt like it represented or it it gave off the wrong vibe of like Kim is back in the game, slipping Kimmy, you know, uh, and despite the fact that she is getting in with the expired uh, uh, license uh, or the, I guess it's not an expired license is the whole point uh, that despite that, they don't want that to be the impression of Kim. That's not what was in the hearts of the people making the show. The beautiful thing about art is you get to interpret it how you want. And if you feel like you've got valid interpretation of this was regression for Kim to come and show up like this, then you get to carry that with you for sure. But they felt like her responding with finger guns of her own would, uh, would be too far in that direction for them. So that is not uh, on the show. And instead what we do get is this final, uh, this final little glimpse of Saul and then he is gone behind the door who knows if he shall be seen again who knows who knows
I uh, I'm I'm in, I'm in for it. I really like that. I like that all that take from uh, the various iterations that were kicked around. Um, it's very telling to me. We, we talk a little bit about Alfred Hitchcock and his visual motifs uh, on this podcast. Uh, the shadow of the window of the door in the uh, client attorney room where Kim and Jimmy are meeting. Uh, is casting these uh, slash marks across the both of them. It almost looks like uh, bars from a prison cell. And that that slash mark was something that Hitchcock would use a ton. Sometimes it would be uh, banister, like little uh, spokes on a banister. Sometimes it would be prison bars. But that that was always a, that was a visual motif that was used a lot. And in this particular instance, it's telling that they're both in that shadow, that the slash marks, the bars, the prison bars, if you will, uh, cast across both of them uh, because they're both in a, in a prison uh, in a way uh, based on their actions. So we, we've seen that Kim, uh, at least until uh, we saw her come back to Albuquerque for Jimmy's trial uh, or Jimmy's moment there, uh, still couldn't answer these questions. Even if she right. was making some progress and doing some volunteering at a legal aid society, uh, she still could not uh, come up with any strong takes or opinions on Red Lobster versus uh, Topaki or to- Top Top Cappy or whatever it was. Right, right. She couldn't come up with it. Uh, she is still a prisoner in some ways uh, to what happened. But the spark was there. The color was there on the edge of the cigarette, I think, indicating that the two of them can heal together, uh, not apart. Uh, and they are because they both understand deeply uh, what each person went through uh, in the course of the things that happened when they were together. Yeah. Uh, when and I knew nothing. Was. Yeah. She probably, you know, talking about regrets, this, this episode certainly is really so much more lensed through Jimmy than anyone else. Right. But if you get like Kim's version of this and the show always resisted going like this too, you know, too close to the sun with telling you how Kim really feels about things or what Kim Kim's full experience is. I think that they've wanted to keep us at arm's length so that there's so much room for interpretation with her, but an interpretation of this for me in terms of what Kim's regrets could be it could reflect a lot of what, you know, a lot of the feedback has been along the way over these past couple of weeks. Some of the feedback that you and I have gotten is like, how could she have left them? You know, we're th- together. We're OK, but uh, or uh, apart, we're OK. Separately, we're OK. But together, we're a mess. We, you know, we hurt people. Uh, it might be true, but isn't there still a world where together they're good? Uh, and I have to wonder, you know, the Kim who I've gotten to know over the course of these shows reads the headlines about what Saul Goodman was involved in. And I bet there are big regrets about, well, what would have happened if I had stayed? What would that have looked like? Um, so I don't know, a, a little rambly, but I, I, I think that some of that is in play here as that's well good. in the ending, you know? Yeah, I think that's um, a good point. So anyway, I, I love it. Uh, really love the ending. It's been very fun to, to re-experience uh, in, the, in the day after the live airing of the show. I'm so happy with how the show ended. And I, I, you know, we've, we've now spent close to, across the first podcast in this one, close to four hours talking about one single episode of TV. And we're not done because we've got a feedback show coming later in the week with the assistance of some new insight from Dr. Christian Hubicki that we will really appreciate getting in to the conversation. If you want to send feedback for that one, bcs at postshowrecaps.com. You've still got some time. We are recording it on Thursday, August 18th in the evening. So get it in uh, earlier in the day that day uh, is uh, the cutoff. Let's call it like noon Eastern-ish, August 18th uh, is when you can get your feedback in until. Um, Any further thoughts on your second pass through uh, Saul Gone before it is truly Saul Gone, Antonio? 
No, I really, I really don't have anything uh, to say. I, like I said, that Jimmy and Chuck conversation is going to be living in my head for a while. And I, I really want to watch that scene and then watch their first scene uh, from the series uh, because it, it takes place very clearly, uh, probably just within a matter of weeks or, 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 or very close to that uh, after Jimmy is coming through. I can't remember. He, he's been taking care of Chuck for a while, maybe even up to a year. So yeah. maybe it's as much as a year before that first scene. I'm not sure. But I, I, I would. that's one of the ones I can't wait to see placed in the proper timeline just to see how it recontextualizes their relationship and makes me feel differently in the moment. Um, the Jimmy and Chuck stuff is something that has stayed with me more than the Jimmy and Kim stuff uh, from Better Call Saul. Uh, and I don't know why. Uh, maybe because I invested so much time in the beginning of the series, uh, or maybe it's because I have my own brothers uh, and have my own relationships with them, uh, and I don't have a you know a Kim Wexler that I'm committing crimes with right. uh, in that regard. Um, so Not yet. I, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. No, You're I'm just never wide open one. for y'all. So. No, no, never going to have one. No, <laughs> you never know. It's not going to resonate like you know. No. It's a starter. I'm a criminal, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah. Criminal anyway, player. anyway, yeah. I I love the I love the Chuck stuff, and I love that we we found a way to bring the beginning of the series back. You know, it isn't just the series of the last season or the last couple of years, and it isn't just the series of Better Call Saul that we did a lot with Breaking Bad as well. So I I couldn't be more pleased. I hope uh, Christian is as well. Can't wait to find out. We will find out in this very next podcast. Stay tuned for more from us, from Christian, as our coverage of Better Call Saul Finale Week continues into the next podcast. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.